Hey, friends. There is so much going on with healthcare right now. The pandemic, the Supreme Court nomination that could end the ACA, and of course, millions being thrown off their healthcare plans. Ever wanted to understand the stakes for healthcare reform? If you listen to this pod, you know I believe in Medicare for All as the solution for our future. It's why I teamed up with Dr. Micah Johnson to write a new book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. It's out on February 1st. You can pre-order the book now at medicareforallbook.com. Donald Trump was discharged from Walter Reed Military Medical Center and then proceeded to tell the American people why they, quote unquote, shouldn't be afraid and called COVID-19 a, quote, gift from God. The Senate Judiciary Committee began hearings for the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett for the Supreme Court. If seated, she could be in place to hear arguments in a case that could spell the end of the ACA, beginning on November 10th. Across the country, COVID-19 cases are up 13% over the past two weeks in a sign that the much-feared and predicted fall spike could be hitting us soon. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Buckle up, this is going to be a rough month. As part of his treatment, Donald Trump is on dexamethasone, a steroid medication. Just in case you wondered if Donald Trump was all of a sudden going to grow a monster pair of biceps, it's a different kind of steroid. Steroids are the medical term for a large class of hormones that have a bunch of different functions in the body. They include some form of testosterone, which is usually what we think of when we talk about being on steroids, but they also include a bunch of others, like corticosteroids, which Donald Trump is on. They get their name because they all share a biological structure with cholesterol, the stare part of the word, is what they share. What makes these drugs so versatile, and also gives them so many side effects, is that their molecular structure allows them to evade the body's usual barriers, to get into all the body's organs, including the brain. The meds that Donald Trump was on can cause a number of psychological side effects, including euphoria, delirium, and frank psychosis, including delusions. Which is why this all matters. It's not clear if Donald Trump was just being his usual self last week, or if the steroids really were hijacking his thinking. You know, such as, I'm a senior. I know you don't know that. Nobody knows that. Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. I think this was a blessing from God that I caught it. Here's the craziest thing. In most people, we should be able to tell the difference between steroid-induced psychological changes and normal baseline. Not Trump. What does all of this have to do with the pandemic? We are managing the most serious global health crisis to hit humanity in over a century. No country has suffered worse than America, despite being the richest and most powerful country in the world. And that's because, at the helm, we have a president who doesn't care about what's in our country's best interest, but in his own. He so brazenly dismissed his own experts' recommendations about how to keep safe, even taunting his opponent for following them, that he got himself and everyone around himself sick. And now, because of him, the entire military leadership of the country, several senators, and much of his White House— are either sick or quarantining for fear of spreading the disease. The point here is that Trump has been erratic, impulsive, and dismissive of expertise, dexamethasone or not. And what happens in the future with this disease depends to a large degree on whether or not this individual continues to occupy his office or not. The issue is so drastic that for the first time in its 208-year history, the New England Journal of Medicine, the country's most storied and respected medical journal, issued an editorial decrying the president and urging Americans to reject him at the polls. In an editorial signed by every single editor at the journal, they wrote, and I quote, When it comes to the response to the largest public health crisis of our time, our current political leaders have demonstrated that they are dangerously incompetent. 
we should not abet them and enable the deaths of thousands more Americans by allowing them to keep their jobs. The journal is in the business of publishing scientific articles that doctors can use to save lives. In publishing this, they're telling us that one of the most important medical interventions we have is our vote. It could mean the difference between lassoing this pandemic down or persisting with more death and disease. After the break, we'll chat with a reporter who's been writing about the pandemic. In a recent piece for Stat News, a leading healthcare news site, he traced 30 different potential turning points for the pandemic. We'll chat with Andrew Joseph, a reporter at Stat News, after the break. My guest today is Andrew Joseph. He is a reporter with Stat News, a leading health and medicine news organization. And he's written a very compelling piece called The Road Ahead, really trying to forecast what we may be up for uh, with COVID-19 over the coming years. Andrew, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. And um, you know, I know listeners probably caught that I said a couple of years. Can you give us some context for how long you think uh, we are in for this and, and why? Yeah, I think that's kind of maybe the main takeaway from the project I did is that um, aspects of this will be with us for a long time and it will go through different phases. Um, Obviously, the vaccine is or the vaccines, I should say, because we're going to need more than one, probably. um, That's what's going to end the acute crisis. But by the time... um, vaccines get to the market and they get deployed to the first people they need to get to and then to everyone. Um, and that's everyone around the world, not just in the U.S. And to make sure that enough people in the U.S. are willing to take it, um, that can take months and months and months. And so even as uh, more and more people get vaccinated, it's, it's possible that like we can take fewer precautions, but it's going to be it's going to be quite a while, probably, especially because it's not totally clear just how effective the vaccines are going to be yet. That's right. And the other part of this is, of course, there's a difference between a vaccine and a vaccination. And um, right. we're seeing as the numbers for mistrust of these vaccines tick up given the politicization of the circumstance. Can you speak a little bit about you know, what the lift looks like to turn a vaccine, a theoretical uh, set of chemicals that we can put in the body to a vaccination that actually goes around the world and, and does the work of, of preventing uh, mass COVID-19 transmission? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different steps and kind of layers going on. There's the scientific development and sort of the regulatory decisions around that, as as you're as you're saying. And then already happening is the manufacturing of that. Um, and this is kind of an unprecedented thing that the government, the U- in the U.S. at least, the government is paying drug companies to manufacture doses of vaccines that haven't proven their efficacy yet. So those those could be destined for the garbage. But the point is that if um, a vaccine is shown to be effective and gets regulatory authorization, like they want to have doses available immediately to start the process. Um, So there's manufacturing, there's science, there's regulatory stuff. There's also a huge apparatus around logistics, um, you know, shipping these things, storing these things. A lot of them have, some of them have to be kept at like incredibly cold temperatures. So there's a cold chain storage, you know, they have to be put into glass vials and, you know, they have to be injected with syringes. So there's this huge apparatus being kind of that's ramping up right now. And then again, it's you have to get it to people and they have to be willing to take it. So um, already there's discussions about who should be prioritized first for um, vaccines. Um, You know, it might be frontline healthcare workers, other frontline workers, um, older people or people who have um, existing conditions that make them more likely to have severe COVID-19. But then there's also kind of going to be a public relations campaign to get everyone else willing to get the vaccine once it becomes more widely available. So yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces. And, you know, we've we've talked a little bit about the vaccine, but of course, there's so much more 
um, regarding the future of COVID. So stepping back, give us a picture of the road ahead, maybe for the next year plus. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I think when we were, a lot of it, you know, a lot of the, I guess the situation with COVID at any given moment, a lot of that is really up to, it's up to governments and it's up to, you know, leaders and things like that. And it's up to scientists, but a lot of it is up to individual people too, as we've kind of hopefully realized over the past six, nine months that how people behave and the steps that people take um, or don't take can really influence the spread of this disease. Um, and so, you know, we can't predict when and where there will be um, outbreaks, for example. Um, but the fact of the matter is like the U.S. still has just like a ton of virus circulating and it's on the rise. And uh, I can't remember the last, the most updated number of states, but some substantial number of states are seeing increases. So it's, it's hard to predict exactly what's going to go on with the, the virus itself. And, you know, there's a lot of concern around the holidays. People, if people travel, if people want to see their families, which understandably they do because people are tired of of being restricted, like that there's a fear that that could set us back. Um, on top of the general concern that the winter might increase the spread of the virus, uh, the fall and winter might increase the spread of the virus as it is because people are moving inside and maybe there might be some seasonality to the virus as well. So um, like it could be a pretty rough year in the US, but it's it's just totally hard to know for sure. And how much does our future course depend on the forthcoming election? Because you can imagine two very different approaches to uh, COVID-19 generally, but in particular from a policy perspective and even a culture perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think, you know, we've seen what the strategy is under a Trump administration, and it's not clear to me that if he's uh, elected again, that that would necessarily change. Like the, And, you know, this is something that's become a political weight um, so there may be even less political incentive to try to, um, I don't know, like particularly because people are so tired of being told to not do things or to wear a mask, um, you know, but at the same time, they would still have to oversee the rollout of a vaccine. They would still have to, they would still have to do that. Um, a Biden administration would seem, would indicate, like, it seems to be, would be quite a different approach. They, the Biden campaign has laid out, um, pretty in-depth, strategy for how they would try to expand testing, for example. They've talked about how they would return public briefings to, to career scientists and not political officials. Um, they've been, they have like a group of he um, health experts advising them on this. So, um, and they've called for much more of like a national strategy, like national, the federal government leading this, the federal government getting involved more in manufacturing, um, for example. So, the election absolutely will have uh, like a dramatic effect on the U.S. epidemic. And, um, and when I was asking all these experts I talked to for the story, like what are some of the most important things, you know, that could reshape the, the U.S. epidemic going forward? Basically, everyone said the election number one. Yeah. And that's, you know, to, to clarify my point, um, there are definitely great people working in the federal government trying to take on COVID-19. The problem is that they are often working against the president, who is the leader of the federal government, uh, whose work has often interfered with um, the best intentions of those folks at those agencies. And so, you know, the, the, the question really, I think, to my mind is, assuming the, the, the next president is, uh, and I'm saying this, not you, God willing, uh, Joe Biden, um, and he gets elected, in order to turn that around, what do you think are the three most important things that he and and leaders under him are going to be able to do that would most clearly change the course of COVID-19 over the next year? 
Um, I think based on talking to public health experts, um, what they would say is that they would look for a leader. This is all leaders, not just the president, but um, university presidents or governors or whatever. Um, They want um, leadership to demonstrate the precautions that we're all being asked to take. And that's obviously the White House has not done that. And now, I mean, look at what's happened to them. Um, They uh, and, you know, and they want um, they want leadership that will be truthful and transparent with the the American people. And like what what's happened a couple of times now in the U.S., it seems is like we have spikes in cases and then they start to come down. And so leaders are like, we're great. We're like, you know, the worst is over. And then people relax and then cases start to increase again. And so um, there's a danger in kind of painting too rosy of a picture. You don't want to be fatalistic, obviously, but you need to be honest that we still have a lot of virus out there. So leadership that understands that you have to see it all the way through. Uh, that just because right, and and you and you need to give honest assessments of the current situation, um, and can't sort of be dismissive or um, kind of overly optimistic um, about th- where things currently stand. And I think maybe like what scientists would like to see in leadership, or public health experts would like to see in leadership, is sort of um, a return to deferring to career scientists or even like the political um, appointees and nominees who lead federal health agencies, but let them kind of Mm -hmm. do what they're tasked with as they lead the the CDC or the FDA, for example. Um, There's been concern about uh, Trump and the White House putting their thumb on the scale at FDA, at CDC, and uh, Stephen Hahn, the commissioner of FDA, and Robert Redfield, the director of the CDC, can kind of push back in some ways, but in some ways they can't. And so um, what I think public health experts want is like um, to have that deference of those health agencies and to, they would want um, a President Joe Biden to appoint leaders at those agencies who can kind of uh, begin to rebuild the public trust in those agencies, because that's frankly taken a, taken a dive in the past couple months. Which is dangerous in a lot of ways, yeah. That's absolutely right. No, I, you raise a, a broader uh, concern about the cultural divisions that have been sown around the COVID nineteen pandemic. And you know, to your mind, is it possible? Do you think to to take this on and to truly fix it? And if so, um, what are the implications of doing so? And how do we go about doing it? But I've been told by public health experts is you have to earn the trust. You can't just say, like, trust us. Um, you have to earn that trust through doing the work, through showing that you're trustworthy. And right now that hasn't necessarily been the case with the Trump administration because of interference at these health agencies or misstatements by top health officials that they've had to, like, then walk back or just um, sort of the optics have not been good about potential interference, um, even as people at the FDA, for example, say that they are will make a rigorous and independent assessment of vaccine candidates. So, like, I think it's the, what the general thought is, like, it's pretty easy to lose trust, but it's hard to gain trust or, or whatever the saying is. And so I think, yeah, peop, like, it can take some time for um, uh, that trust in those health agencies to, to come back. And so that's kind of why that would be one of the most pressing issues to at least start that process. You know, even beyond the mistrust um, and the distrust of federal health agencies that have been, you know, politicized, there's also just a, a swath of our population that see basic public health interventions as an affront to their liberties and the the COVID nineteen pandemic as, frankly, uh, a hoax. How do we go about addressing that? Right, because the distrust um, right now has led to, you know, a level of just 
frankly, choosing not to abide by basic public health interventions that, you know, individuals need to abide by. Um, Is there a pathway forward to taking that on? Boy, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's like the short answer, but like, I think um, people have been surprised by just how, like, how deep, I guess, uh, the country's individualistic libertarian streak runs. I think, you know, maybe intellectually they could have seen that coming versus like countries in Europe or countries in Asia, for example. But just like this is like a time when you're really confronting that head on. Um, And I think that's part of the frustration with the Trump administration among public health experts because that hasn't been discouraged. Maybe that's only been encouraged by the Trump administration's um, failures to follow recommended uh, guidelines, for example, or to demonstrate proper masking behavior, for example, or, or, you know, the president dismissing the virus because that can, everyone else can then just dismiss the virus if you're, you know, your national leader is, is telling you one thing. Um, so I don't really know how you, how you go about fixing that. Um, and I mean, I'm frankly wondering, and I think a lot depends on how he fares over the next couple of days, but like, I'm wondering if, if, and how, um, president Trump's case of COVID-19 will maybe cement people in those views. If he, if he fares pretty well and says it wasn't so bad or, or, or or maybe it'll change people's views. That's kind of one of the, like the outstanding questions that's on my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same. I, I uh, was just going to ask you that. I, you know, you look at this and it is a profound uh, case of schadenfreude for a lot of folks that this president whose uh, failure to lead um, and to politicize, his, his willingness to politicize this virus has then led to his own infection, you know, within a month of the election. Um, and at the same time, he is still going about politicizing this pandemic, right? He made a statement uh, just before he decided to take a joyride with a bunch of Secret Service agents while he was infectious with COVID-19, saying that, you know, this had been a a, a real uh, opportunity to, quote unquote, go to school, uh, you know, not the kind of school that uh, that is reading books, <laughs> um, which, you know, all of us wish he would have read a few more books because, of course, the people who are treating him in the hospital had just read books. Um, but the, the challenge is that um, it's unclear to, you know, what, what the implications are going to be for so many of of his supporters, and you know, it, it, on the one hand, you could imagine folks saying, "Well, you know, look at look at what this attitude has has delivered," and on the other, right, he may just um, come out of it and say, "Look, it wasn't really that bad." I, I want to finish with one, uh, you know, last question for you. What are the the biggest pitfalls uh, that you worry about, and the folks that you've interviewed worry about us falling into um, as we make our way forward? Uh, when it comes to potentially prolonging and worsening the consequences of this pandemic? I'll point to, I guess, um, four quick ones um, that jump to mind. One is complacency, which you're already seeing. That's kind of what we're talking about, how so much of this is is, is driven by individual decisions and individual actions or inactions. And so as people understandably like get frustrated with not seeing their family or not seeing their friends, um, that just leads to more spread. The second thing would be the fall and winter, um, particularly as people in like the northern half of the country move indoors and and there is going to be an expected seasonal factor, like the virus just might spread better in cold and dry climates. So there's a concern that people are going to like this could, there could be a big spike in cases um, in the fall and winter. Um, The third is if people don't take the vaccine, as we were talking about, then that can prolong the pandemic. 
And I guess I should add that that's assuming we do get that some of these vaccine candidates in, in trials now do show to be safe and effective and are you know authorized for public use. And then the fourth thing that could potentially prolong this is there's this concept called vaccine nationalism. And basically it's the idea that um, predominantly like richer countries will kind of soak up all the supply uh, that the companies can produce, or at least at first. Um, and, you know, you see elements of that in terms of richer countries trying to secure doses already with manufacturers, like X number of millions of doses for their citizens. Um, but this is, you know, a pandemic is by definition kind of spreading around the world. And so what health experts and, and advocates will tell you is that the you know, global trade won't return, global travel won't return until the pandemic is sort of snuffed out uh, globally. And so there's going to be need to be a big effort to get uh, vaccines distributed around the world, to, including to um, lower income countries. And so that's, you know, that's something that could be playing out like next summer, for example, or into the fall. So it's going to be interesting to see how uh, vaccine actually gets distributed. Mm. Well, thank you for that. And and we want to end on a, a bit of a, a brighter note. Um, what are you optimistic about? I, I guess, you know, one thing that is pretty remarkable is like how, you know, they're not proven yet, but just to get to this point, the vaccines, like the, there's never been anything like this. And that's um, a result of a, a number of things. That's the result of, you know, sort of improvements of science made over decades to get to the point where they have these platforms and can kind of study viruses so quickly and have the genetic technology to build vaccines. So that's, that's just, and like, that's pretty remarkable. And a lot of that's also just the fact that so much money is pouring into vaccines right now. Um, I think that's something that makes me optimistic. It's just like how quickly they've gotten to this point. Again, they still not known if they'll work, but like to get to this point is this fast is pretty remarkable. Um, what else makes me optimistic? <laughs> um, you know, I think I think you know we, there's a lot of focus on people who aren't wearing masks or who people who aren't taking precautions. I think that kind of um, it glosses over the fact that a lot of people are, um, and a lot of people are taking this seriously, and a lot of people are trying to do right by others and do right by their community. And I think. Um, that can be pretty heartening to see a lot of times. So I would say that like, because I think most people are um, to various extents, you know, trying to do the right thing or doing their best or trying to be cautious. And, and that's what we need fundamentally. So I guess I, I can, I can get heartened by that as well. All right. Well, we'll take it. Um, Andrew, we really appreciate you uh, joining us today and, and, and sharing your insights from your reporting. Uh, folks can check out uh, more at statnews.com uh, and also Follow Andrew at Drew Q. Joseph on Twitter. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Last Thursday, the FBI and Michigan State Police announced that they had arrested 13 people in connection to a terrorist organization that was planning to arrest Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer and try to foment civil war. First, I'm grateful that Governor Whitmer and her family are safe. She's a strong leader who stood in to keep our state safe. Michigan's low COVID-19 numbers since May are a testament to that fact, which is exactly why these terrorists targeted her. This plot speaks to a rising danger of far-right terrorism. As an Arab and Muslim American who was in high school on 9-11, I grew up in an atmosphere where I was vilified and humiliated by authorities because my name, complexion, and faith automatically singled me out as a potential quote-unquote homegrown terrorist. Never mind, I've spent my life trying to heal people. And yet, under the Trump administration, every effort has been taken to deny the rise of far-right and white supremacist terrorism occurring across our country. This is the real homegrown terrorism. And we've got to root it out. And that starts with calling it that. So please don't give them any credence as a quote-unquote militia. 
These are terrorists who aim to destabilize our country in support of their political cause. They are no different from the 19 9-11 hijackers, except that they are white and grew up in America. And allowing that to buy them out of their actions leaves us all more vulnerable. Oh, and we really shouldn't forget that they've been radicalized by forces in our own country, too. Proud boys, stand back and stand by. Someone really should do something about these radical extremist clerics. Now, I know John reminded everyone at the top, but just in case you haven't yet voted or don't have a voting plan yet, go to votesaveamerica slash your state, meaning the name of your state, to get more information. Being that I'm in Michigan, I would go to votesaveamerica.com slash Michigan. And then make sure to reach out to your friends, your family, your family friends, and your friends' family to make sure that they get their ballots in on time too. Literally, the future of our country is on the line. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Taka Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 